Welcome to Leadership 2020. I'm Claire Carpenter. So I'm joined this afternoon by Evan Harris. Evan is a former outsourcing executive who's now involved in several startups and also has lots of experience with major workforce management programs and in the health sector in particular. Thanks for joining oh, me this afternoon. Me. So, so we've got the big question to talk about this afternoon, which is what does it really mean to be a leader? So this could take us in a number of different directions, but I'm interested in in what occurs to you straight away when you think about that question. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think it's very subjective, but I think the non-negotiables are to set the vision, communicate the vision effectively and get teams behind you in that vision so everybody's moving in the same direction and knows exactly where we're trying to get to. And I guess a subset of that is also to involve people in the creation of the vision so they feel that they're engaged and they've had a, a voice. And so it's not just, you know, a leader saying this is how it's going to be and everybody do it. I'm just, I'm interested if you see a difference between the role of a leader, for example, in some of the startups that you're involved with and the corporate environments that you've worked in as well. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure there's a radical difference in a way. It's just the team size is a lot smaller and probably there's fewer constraints that you'd have in a corporate but I think, you know, the essential ingredients of leadership are, are very, very similar. So you talked about communication, setting the vision. Yeah. How do you learn to do that then? Well, it goes back to is, you know, are you born a leader? Can you learn it? And I think it's a bit of both. I think some people have a natural kind of front and are able to communicate well and almost project themselves and, you know, give energy to a team. Other people might struggle on that. But I think there's only one way to find out, and that's doing it. So I think, ultimately, it helps to learn the, the you know, academic side and read business books and everything. But I think the doing it is where you really learn it. So, for instance, I chose not to do an MBA or anything like that. I didn't think that would be as beneficial for someone with my skill set and aspirations. I thought, you know, just learn it on the job. Leadership might be a bit like interviewing. Lots of people sort of learn how to be a leader based on how they've been led themselves in the past. Have you had experience of that yourself? Yeah, I think everybody will, if they're fortunate enough to see very positive leadership that they find personally inspiring, Mm -hmm. then it's natural to want to emulate the leadership style and behaviours that they've witnessed. So, you know, I I think I've I've been lucky to see some very good leaders and... uh, certainly have modelled some of my my style upon them. Obviously not following them 100% because I think it's really important to be authentic and have your own sense of individuality and individual style. But, yeah, certainly if you're lucky enough to to work with someone really, really strong, then it's a a big help. Because, again, I don't think you can read a book. Mm. You might read a Jack Welsh autobiography and think that that's a good way to behave, but it's it's obviously several steps removed compared with the day-in, day-out experience of seeing someone who you rate uh, working well. So when you think about someone that you've worked with as a really great, inspiring leader, what what makes them like that? What do they do? Yeah, I was thinking about sort of the essential elements of what makes a good leader, and I sort of came up with three points. So I think, firstly, they have to have a, a reasonable level of competency. So someone could be a fantastic person who's incredibly empathetic and incredibly authentic, but if they're not actually that good at their job 
or they're perceived by the leadership above them or their peers on the leadership team as not being particularly good. And, you know, let's face it, everybody knows what other people think of other people at the top. Um, so if you don't have that competency, it doesn't matter what you do. So I think that's number one, just some sort of baseline of competency. And it's not necessarily the most competent person is the best leader. I think that's, you know, obviously there's a lot of incredibly bright people out there with fantastic CVs, but on the job they can be pretty awful. But you need some sort of competency. So as number one. I'd say number two, and something I talk a lot about with people who report directly to me, is just genuinely caring about people. I actually think it's a competitive advantage. It shouldn't be a competitive advantage because it's, I think people think that it's sort of natural. But in my experience, a lot of leaders just don't actually care. They care about the results. They care about their own career. They care about the organization. They care about you know, getting ahead. But they don't care about somebody as a person. And it's that whole thing about, you know, build a relationship before you manage the task versus just manage the task and expect people to get onto it. So just genuinely, if, if I think if someone reporting to you and even a wider team feels that you care, like genuinely care about that person. So, you know, care about their family life, care about their personal sense of achievement, mm. care about their career and their direction. I think that's a huge, huge point. Uh, something that I put a lot of energy into. And thirdly, and finally, I think in the sort of big points is just to be authentic. You know, and it's a bit of a cliche these days, but again, it's remarkable how few leaders are genuinely themselves and got the confidence to be themselves. So something I talk a lot about is, you know, I, I seek to be the same person in the boardroom as I am in the pub, literally the same person. So I guess my, I probably swear a lot less in a ballroom and, you know, might be a bit more restrained in what I express, but ultimately I'm, I'm the same person. For a conference call with 200 people, I'm exactly the same person as I am if I'm one-to-one -one mm -hmm. in a small meeting room. So, and I think that level of authenticity, again, you, you can't fake it. People know it. And you know, nobody responds well to somebody sort of fronting up and putting on a mask or sort of hiding themselves. So that's authenticity, I think, is can immediately connect people. So that's, again, you know, another, if you can pull it off, is a huge, I think, competitive advantage. And you know, aligns people. And when you're communicating authentically, people will actually listen because they know this is coming from a greater source than, you know, five bullet points on a wall. So I think that's, again, a, a very important point. It's interesting. I'm reminded as you're speaking about hearing new managers say they need to leave a part of themselves at the door and be different. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? There's a perception that actually you can't be your authentic self. And it's very unfortunate. And, and luckily, I think it's changing. I yeah. think, you know, I almost, well, I did say that authenticity has become a cliche and it's a good thing because yeah. it is genuinely important and so few people do it. And it, it comes back to another question. Why doesn't everyone do it? Yeah. And I think it's it requires some courage, I think, to walk in and sort of drop the defences and just have the confidence to turn up and say, this is me, not take it or leave it so much, but this is me and I'm not willing or able in a way to just be this corporate robot. One, I don't think it's going to work as well. And two, it's really boring. So yeah, I think, I think it's, it's really unfortunate when somebody thinks that that's what's required. And obviously, you know, why do they think that presumably? Because that's what they've seen above them. There's a balance, isn't there? And I, I like the points that you've said, that they're balanced against each other, though, that there's your authentic self and you can be yourself and you can be yourself with whichever person in the organisation you're talking to. But also you're demonstrating that you care about those individuals. There are some leaders who say, I'm just being my authentic self, but actually their authentic self isn't that pleasant to work with at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd like to think, though, that if someone's coming from their authentic source and they're caring about someone, then 
generally it can't go that wrong. No. It'd be a shame if a leader is authentically uncaring. <laughs> and, and I think there's still lots of examples of that. Yeah, yeah. And it goes with what does the organisation reward? Unfortunately, a lot of organisations reward selfishness ultimately and defensiveness and this sort of adoption of this corporate sort of sense of being that doesn't necessarily fit all individuals equally. Mm. And do you see the the sort of leadership brand of an of a particular individual cascading through the organization? Can you see it? Yeah, lower it's, it's down? scary. One of my experiences was to create Capita PLCs. So Capita a big outsourcing company not doing so well right now unfortunately, but 10 12 years ago they were, you know, number 1 a very, very effective company and very unique in a way. And I, I started their Indian operation uh, almost from scratch up to about a 1,000 people. And so I was thrown completely in the deep end. And there was one moment I remember where maybe I did something that I, I didn't think was brilliant on you know, reflection and I just saw it, what it did. And it was that first moment, very, very scary, to realise how much power you have mm. and how much negative effect you can have. I mean, I think we all like to think about the positive effect we have and we focus on that and I think we use that to support our ego but if we do something wrong and we see it just cascade is the right word just literally cascade through the levels in a really negative way and it's it's terrifying it's positive in the sense to be aware of it but it's terrifying just how much a leader can impact an organization it's completely disproportionate to what it should be again why is that maybe humans are pack animals and you know the whole top dog thing is ultimately maybe how we're biologically wired but it's a lot of a lot of pressure in a way and a lot of responsibility. And I wonder how many people actually want to realise that because it's no fun to realise that in a way. I think there's a lot of research that shows that the it's the leadership behaviour that drives the culture and then ultimately the performance of an organisation. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I think, you know, a, a good leader can have you know enormously positive results. A bad leader, I think the, the corporate literature is filled with successful organisation, new leader comes along. I mean, Apple's the, yeah. is the, the trophy case. But bad leader comes along, suddenly the company's just driven into the ground. Again, you know, very scary to recognise that this is, this is the reality of being a leader. So all of that being said, why do you think that many people who are in leadership roles don't do very much to develop themselves? Yeah, again, a really good question. And I've thought a lot about it, actually. Because if it were easy, given it's obvious, like to think it's obvious. So if it were easy, everybody would do it. And I think ultimately it's down to the individual psychology of the leader and leaders as a group. And I think it's just really hard, again, to be open, honest, transparent, authentic, because the backlash you can get by being that way and being you know, vulnerable, again, a bit of a cliche in management circles, but you can talk about vulnerability a bit and actually be vulnerable and, and expose yourself to a backlash that can hurt you as an individual as opposed to a leader. So a leader who's just wearing a mask isn't exposed mm. to the backlash. They could sit there and say, well, it's the organisation, I had to do it, blah, blah, blah. Or it's the market forces or something. But if you're the authentic leader turning up you know, without the mask, then it hits you like in the heart. I like to think again, you know, mm. it's, it's hitting your authentic self. So do you want to put yourself in that position? And I think a lot of corporate cultures, it's unsafe to put yourself in that position. Mm. So if it was easier, it would be everybody would do it. It requires, I think, a lot of courage and a lot of confidence to think that my authentic self was okay. So it's, this is, these are really hard stuff. And I think going back to maybe the, again, sounds lofty, but the biological stuff, if humans are pack animals and the top dog the top dog's responsible for the safety of the pack. And if the pack isn't safe, 
the pack will essentially turn on the leader, turn on the top dog. And that's, again, going back to the power negatively and positively, it's carrying, you're carrying a lot of weight for the, for the safety and the success of that group. And when you think, okay, it's all just individuals turning up to work, but their family's success can rely on the organization's success, which essentially is impacted by your performance. And it's a lot of weight to carry. And it's much, much easier to stay behind the mask. What's your experience of individuals growing into a leadership role from a peer group, for example? So today, I'm just one of the gang, I'm one of the team, and then tomorrow, actually... I'm in charge of that team. Yeah, it's, I think it's a, a very common transition point and probably the first time it happens is the most impactful time it happens once you've learned it. You, you've, you've learned it. So I think it's very difficult because you, you're kind of all peers and um, you, know, you can all moan together and you don't have responsibility for them. They don't have to do what you say. Mm. It's more co-creative and then suddenly you're in charge. I think it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult transition for people to understand it's different now. You know, the relationship has to be different. And a lot of people, I think, come unstuck by not recognising that fundamentally there's been a shift and different behaviours are required from you in that new role. And what generally goes wrong is people don't realise that, so they treat their former peer, I don't want to say treat the same way, I mean they don't acknowledge the shift, so they try to have exactly the same relationship. They try to be matesy maybe with them as they were previously. And so when... Perhaps you have to make a tough decision. You can't take it because you're not you, you're still thinking prior to the promotion, and therefore you maybe avoid tough conversations or you kind of step around issues without addressing them. Often the peer group might be very happy about the new leader coming in, so there might mm. be some quite negative behaviours hitting them again, which they're trying to kind of absorb without maybe being as firm as they need to be. So a lot can go wrong, I think, in that transition. I mean, most people come through it, so yeah. it's okay. But it, yeah, generally, there's a big shift. And as I talked about before, you can't read it in a book. And you know, having an exit coach around can be fantastic to sort of say that you know, this is a normal experience. And hopefully, you've got a boss who's recognizing that, okay, yeah. that boss takes some responsibility for the promotion decision and therefore will provide more support in the early days. Because let's face it, people need support in that scenario. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that sometimes more support is offered to individuals who are brought into an organization externally yeah. than is given to individuals who are rising through the existing organization. Yeah. Why yeah. do you think that is? I think people put maybe sometimes too much emphasis on cultural understanding mm-hmm. and so they and they go with a safe choice and they think because someone's you know been in the organization they're a known quantity I guess there's also a confirmation bias because if you're the person who made the decision to say that you know Barry's right for the next role or Sue's right for the next role then you're expecting it to work out Whereas if you bring in someone externally, it's much more acknowledged that, okay, this is a new culture, there's a new way of doing things, there needs to be some sort of hand-holding period. So I, I'd say that's the main reason. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Just thinking about what advice you might give to somebody in their first role as a leader, and I guess perhaps it's hard to differentiate between being a manager and a leader, and maybe that's just pedantics, maybe we don't need to go into that. Um, but uh, okay, what do that, you think about that? On that point about yeah. you know, leadership versus management, I think that's been overplayed. Okay, good. You know, I think, I I think people it used to be, you know, leaders set the vision, blah, 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 yeah. and managers basically do what they're told and distribute tasks. And I think that's very much a kind of 20th century mechanistic view of organisations and roles. So I, I don't think there's a huge difference between the two. Yeah. But in terms of advice for someone in a new leadership role, Go back to the three things I mentioned at the start. So make sure that you have a reasonable level of competency. So just because you're in a new leadership role doesn't mean you can suddenly 
you know, delegate every task and not do the some of the lower level tasks that are boring and you know we still need to do such as performance management type activities be as genuinely caring as you can maybe work on that because maybe when before you were a leader you didn't really have to think about it so much or maybe another way of putting it maybe you did think about it but whatever you do don't think that that is something you can downgrade when you go into a leadership role and uh, then you know be yourself as much as you can because again I said this is hard maybe in the early days you do need to be a bit more protective of yourself as you get the confidence But for as much as possible, try to be authentic, try and be yourself and think that I'm okay. I've been chosen for this position, even though, you know, we could talk a load about imposter syndrome, but which, you know, everyone has, I think, to a certain degree. And, you know, I think you've got to get on with it. And the more you can be yourself, then the better for you and your team. And if I do that and I take on that advice and I take on the role of a leader, what's in it for me? Like, why is it a good thing to do? I'm biased here because I, I personally think, again, it's going to sound a bit lofty, but, but I think leadership's an incredible honour. I think it's the greatest thing in the world to be in a position to do it. So I think actually the day-to-day nitty-gritty of a leader is the reward in itself. You know, if it doesn't go to your head, if you're authentic, you know, if you can take on some of the more positive parts of it. So what's in it for you beside the obvious, such as, you know, more money and maybe greater external validation I think you know just the developing as a leader and being able to have sort of direct that power you have in a positive way you know care for your team support your team identify talent and bring that talent up you know most managers leaders will say this that the best part of the job is just to find someone who mightn't even realize how good they are and you know take them under your wing develop them give them confidence give them promotions that's I find enormously satisfying. So the what's in it for you, uh, what's in it for the new leader is, I think, very, very easy to find. If it's not, then maybe they're not the right person. I think that's a really great place for us to probably finish up thinking about that. I might close just by asking you, when you look back on your leadership career so far, what are you most proud of as a leader? Specific situations. So when I was in India, it was um, a very challenging, very, very challenging environment. Um, it was this sort of the offshore boom of last decade and attrition in the, the Indian offshoring industry was just unbelievable. So, for instance, I, I interviewed two different people who had attrition rates of 250%, Ooh. which means your entire workforce turns over every five months yeah. on average. And if you're operating under that, that, those conditions, then you, you have to do things differently. And I used to tell uh, my colleagues in the UK to try and give them a sense of what it's like. So, you know, and I, I challenged them and said, how would you manage if every single one of your subordinates had six job offers in their bottom drawer right now? Yeah. You know, you're going to act differently. It forces you to put a lot of energy into, right, let's create the greatest environment and greatest culture possible. And what, what we did there, the, the top team at a lot of levels, because it got quite large, was just trying to create the greatest place to work in India. You know? And how we did that was to try to be as non-hierarchical as possible, which was completely radical in an Indian traditionally hierarchical environment. I think we pulled it off. So what I'm proud of is um, you, know, you walked in that organisation and you, you felt it as soon as you walked in the, in the reception. Bang! You, know, you felt, wow, okay, this is... This is you just felt this energy and you felt this positivity and every single person you would speak to would you would give you that sort of positivity and and you know we put a lot of effort into client visits and that and you know we i treated the security guard who you know would have been living in a slum literally exactly the way i treated the coo and it was radical and i think it created this incredibly positive energy so yeah. that's probably what i'm most proud of and there were certain sort of ways that manifested which you know really gave me a very very deep sense of satisfaction I can see it thank you Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, thank you. 
Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a rating and review to help others find out about the show. This is a Podo podcast produced by Nick Hilton in association with Corndell. Thank you.